And so good morning, Wellspring. Good to see everybody here and those online as well. It's officially October. I don't know how that happened, um, but it's here. And so parents, give yourselves a pat on the back. You made it through September, the uh, startup month, and hopefully I'm praying that you have adjusted to the fall routines. And I know that Pastor Shane has already introduced uh, Darren to us, but I just also want to say I'm just so thankful that he has uh, just chosen to partner with us through our worship ministries in this way. And I thought it'd also be helpful just to clear up any possible misunderstandings that Darren Martin and I are not actually biological brothers. I know that might confuse some. Um, We are spiritual brothers in Christ. And uh, it's been a real joy over the last couple of years to really get to know his heart for Jesus, but also his heart for people and connecting them to the love of God. So really excited to have him be a part of our community. So one of the things that we've been doing the last uh, while is kind of throwing out a discussion question, an idea for you to think about And the question I want you to consider today is this. When is the last time that you heard something that made you stop and reconsider what you believed to be true? When is the last time you encountered new information that led you to a new understanding or a new position in a way that was transformative for you as a person? You know, maybe it was watching the news and you came across a story that caused you to pause and to rethink a previously held position. You know, maybe it was a friend who shared a story with you, some new information that you kind of had to weigh against a former position that you held. And so what I want you to do is actually turn to one another for the next 45 seconds or just where you're sitting and think about and discuss a time when you learned something new that caused you to rethink what you believed to be true. So go ahead and do that for the next 45 seconds. Good. Now, I'm not sure if that was a bit of a harder one for some of you to talk about. Uh, Some people were struggling to think of an example, maybe. I think if we're being honest, it probably is a lot easier for us to think about the times where we have offered other people information uh, that caused them to have to rethink, and maybe that's where we were going with our minds there. Because the truth is, when we're on the receiving end of this, isn't it true that it actually takes a lot of humility? and a lot of maturity to admit that maybe our understanding of something isn't as fully formed as we thought it was. And maybe when confronted with truth, that we are the ones who need to change our mind. So we've been in this series the last couple of weeks called Pursuing Jesus, where we actually have been taking a look at our church's vision and our core values. And uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've done this. Pastor Shane, uh, two weeks ago, we took a look at our vision statement And we learned about pursuing deeper life in Christ, one that is built on God's Word. And last Sunday, we kind of jumped into one of our core values, and we learned about being a community that is Spirit-led. 
And today we're going to focus on another one of our core values, and that value is transformation. Now this core value is that we would experience life transformation through Jesus on all levels of who we are. From our heads, the way that we think, to our hearts, the way that we feel, and ultimately into our hands, the way that we live out this transformed life. Now often in the lives of other people, when we witness lives being transformed by Jesus, we often kind of see that played out in their hands, don't we? In the way that they live outwardly. But this change, when we see it outwardly, it actually first begins in the mind as God transforms our thoughts and God renews our minds as we encounter his truth. You know, there's a lot of examples in the Bible of people who've experienced a transformed life through transformed thinking as they've encountered God's truth. And so this morning, I want to examine one of these stories in John's gospel in chapter 4 of this truth where Jesus actually changes a woman's mind by his truth. And that changed mind affects her and changes her heart, which ultimately results in a changed life. But before we enter into the text together, let's open in a word of prayer, asking God to open our minds to his truth today. Let's pray together. Father, Thank you for this morning. We thank you already for the worship that we were able to participate in, to just lift our voices to exalt your name above all other names. And so God, in these next few moments, I pray that you would truly open our our minds to your truth. God, would you unlock our understanding that we would receive your truth in a way that is really transformative. God, I pray that it would move beyond our minds and into our hearts, that Father, you would change the way we feel and the way we experience your love in our life every single day. And God, not to stop there, but would you move that into our hands and our feet, that we would live these things out in our daily lives, wherever you have placed us, in our workplaces, in our communities, in our homes, that the gospel and the truth of Jesus would impact every part of our lives. Father, anything of me today, I pray that that would just not be in the way, that you would remove it. We only want to hear from you. And so, Holy Spirit, would you have your will and you have your way in our presence and in our midst today, in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, or your apps, please get those out and turn with me to John chapter 4. We're going to spend the majority of our time there this morning. And the story that we're going to look at today is the story where Jesus meets this Samaritan woman at a well. And, and the story of the Samaritan woman actually fits within the larger story of what John is writing about. And John in his gospel is ultimately concerned with one central theme— And that is the appearance of the Son of God in human history. The appearance of the Son of God in human history. And as you read through John's gospel, he makes this point over and over again. You know, God coming down, heaven entering earth, the divine embodying humanity and taking on flesh. And the appearance of Jesus, it had a purpose as well, to bring redemption to a broken and a hurting world. Jesus is the light that reflects the glory of God and penetrates the darkness of this world. Right from the very first chapter, we get that kind of thesis, if you will, that idea in verse 14, when he says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so John, over and over again, develops this theme by using a lot of different contrasts. I kind of love how he writes. He contrasts light and darkness, flesh and spirit, belief and unbelief, seeing and blindness, death and life. 
And even the story that we're going to look at together today, it's actually set up in contrast to the story that comes right before it in John chapter 3, because it's in this chapter that we are actually introduced to this religious elite and respected Orthodox Pharisee named Nicodemus. See, Nicodemus pursues seeking, uh, he tries to seek understanding with Jesus, but he leaves unable to understand and receive. And in the very next chapter, the one we're going to look at today, is in this chapter that Jesus meets an unnamed, unorthodox woman who is disrespected not only by the Jews, but also by her own people. In that day that we're going to look at, she actually has no intention of seeking Jesus, but she meets Jesus all the same at a well. You see, where the religious leaders and the elites, they fail to understand and comprehend Jesus, she wasn't trying to seek understanding at all, but Jesus reveals his truth to her. He opens up her mind and her heart to the gospel. Also, what's interesting between these two stories is even the time of day. There's so much imagery. I love the Bible because in John 3, Nicodemus goes and looks for Jesus, and it's nighttime. It's dark. In the cover of night, it's concealed. But then in chapter 4, we see Jesus talking to this woman in the middle of the day at noon out in public where everyone can see them. Ultimately, in all of this, John is trying to illustrate the point that Jesus may have been rejected by his own people, but the gospel is not limited to one people. The gospel is not limited to one nation, as we just heard this morning, but actually the gospel is breaking out and moving beyond Israel and beginning to reach the nations. Isn't that exciting that we're part of that still today? We're still a part of that today. And so with that as a backdrop, let's take a look at John chapter 4. And I want to start reading for you, uh, starting in verse 1, the story. And it says this, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees has, had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea, and he went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. And so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman came and said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, in this story, Jesus' ministry, it's actually gaining momentum to the point where the crowds who once were looking for John the Baptist are now looking for Jesus. And kind of in the same way, the Pharisees who were concerned about John's popularity are now becoming increasingly concerned with Jesus' ministry and his ever-increasing influence. So to avoid further persecution, Jesus actually leaves Jerusalem. He leaves Judea. And he returns once again to Galilee, a region farther removed and farther away from the control of the Pharisees. Now in the story, the text says that he had to go through Samaria. You know, geographically speaking, Jesus actually had other routes available to him between, between Judea and Galilee. In fact, Jews would often avoid Samaritan cities because of their long-standing rivalry. And it's kind of ironic in the story because Jesus has just left Judea after being rejected by his own people. And here we see he's now being accepted by the enemies of his people, the Samaritans. Now for you and I as modern readers of the story, it's actually really easy for us to overlook 
the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. Actually, to overlook the tension and kind of miss the multiple barriers that Jesus breaks through when he begins speaking to this Samaritan woman. You know, to you and I, it probably reads like a casual conversation, maybe one like you'd have at your office, you know, by the water cooler with a colleague kind of talking about the weekend. But to the original audience, if they read this story, alarm bells would have gone off because Jesus crossed a line here. You know, in asking this woman one question, will you give me a drink? And when he does this, Jesus doesn't just break one cultural barrier, but actually three, all in the same moment. First of all, Jesus breaks an ethnic barrier. As I mentioned earlier, there was actually a huge rivalry between the Jews and the Samaritans. In fact, the Jews considered the Samaritans to be a half-breed nation. These were people who were kind of the remaining people that formed after the Babylonian exile in 722 B.C., They were the lowest classes of society, the not good enough. They were left behind, and they were forced to settle in northern Israel and intermarry with other pagan nations. And this mix of different people groups also resulted in a mix of cultural and religious practices and beliefs. And so the Samaritan people, they actually combined Yahweh worship with elements of idolatrous practices and pagan worship. In fact, they even rejected Jerusalem as the center of worship, which included the temple as well as the majority of the Old Testament writings that centered on Jerusalem. Their new religion, it's surrounded and centered on the law of Moses only and their own temple that they built on Mount Gerizim. And when Israel finally returned home from exile after 70 years, they no longer accepted the Samaritans as God's people because they had compromised so much of what it meant to be a people of God. And so to say that the Jews disliked the Samaritans, that would be a major misrepresentation of what's going on, a major understatement. They didn't just dislike them, but in fact they hated them. And the tension really exploded in 128 when the Jews actually burned the Samaritan temple. And in response— The Samaritans, they actually defiled the Jerusalem temple by scattering bones in it during the Passover. It went so far as the uh, Samaritans actually hunting down and killing a group of Galilean pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. So there's a lot of tension between these two nations. Are you kind of seeing that in the story? And so it ran so deep that it wasn't enough for them to simply walk on the other side of the street to avoid each other. It was so bad that Jews completely avoided traveling through Samaria altogether when going from Jerusalem to Galilee. They would actually go out of their way, up the east side of the Jordan River, just to avoid having to see these people. Specifically, the Jews even believe that sharing a dish that a Samaritan person has handled in and of itself would make them ceremonially unclean. And so think about the story. Here Jesus is. He meets with this woman. He speaks to her. And then what does he do? He asks her for a drink, and she draws it for him using her very own water jar. Jesus breaks an ethnic barrier. Secondly, Jesus breaks a gender barrier. You know, in this culture, it was irregular for a rabbi to even speak with a woman in public, but here's Jesus speaking openly with this woman in the middle of the day where everyone can see them. And the fact that this was irregular can be seen with the disciples' response. If you look down a little bit in verse 27, it says that they were surprised to see Jesus speaking with this woman. And so Jesus breaks a gender barrier. And thirdly, 
Jesus breaks a moral barrier imposed by this woman's immoral behavior, something Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, was aware of and had knowledge of. See, her immoral reputation had resulted in her being socially isolated. You know, historically at this time, fetching water was a task that was kind of done by the women either in the morning or it was done in the evening or in the afternoon with the whole community. But here we find this woman coming to the well alone at noon in the heat of the Mediterranean sun. See, she may have been rejected by her own people, but Jesus, this Jewish man and rabbi, he accepts her. And you know, the original audience, they would have easily seen all of these cultural barriers that Jesus breaks, but when you and I understand them, doesn't it reveal to us the heart that Jesus has for other people? The heart that he has for other people. I think it reveals that to us. You know, unlike so many other Jews, Jesus, a well-known rabbi, he shows love where others have shown hatred. He shows understanding where others have shown judgment. He shows forgiveness and mercy where others show bitterness and resentment. And Jesus doesn't choose to avoid the conflict, but instead he actually ministers despite the conflict. And he places this woman's spiritual needs higher than his own reputation and his comfort. I just want to pause for a second in the story to highlight this truth, because Jesus goes out of his way to reach the lost, the marginalized, the outcast, the unreligious, and the enemy of his people. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people. Amen? The gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people. It is for a violent persecutor of Christians like Saul, who meets Jesus and becomes Paul, who gave his life to proclaim Christ. It is for dishonest tax collectors like Matthew and Zacchaeus. It is for people who have a past and who have been alienated from everyone else in their life except for Jesus, as we see in the story with the woman at the well. Friends, the gospel is for all people, including those in your life who have hurt you, who have neglected you, who have been unjust to you. Jesus did not come for the healthy. We know he came for the sick. And as followers of Christ, we need to point people to the great physician and never write off anyone because no one is beyond hope. No one is beyond the reach of Christ's love and redemption. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that? You know, there's another point that I kind of want to highlight in the story at this point as well is that this really highlights and displays Jesus's humanity. Because when he arrives at the well that day, he is exhausted from his long journey. And he sends his disciples into town to go get some food. And there he sits in the heat of the afternoon sun, and he needs to be refreshed. Jesus is tired. You know, in so many other places, John kind of favors the divinity and the power of Jesus. But here, we actually see that Jesus' humanity is on display when he asks for a drink. And as I was kind of thinking about this, the fact is that this new school year has just begun, and I know for a fact that there are some of you in this room sitting here or watching online, and you are already exhausted. You're already exhausted. You know, you might be managing your family schedule, but the truth is, below the surface, you're just holding it together. You are physically and emotionally exhausted. You are worn out. And I want you to know that Jesus understands your fatigue. Jesus understands what it means to have physical limitations. And if you are tired today, can I please encourage you to find your rest in Jesus? You know, the incarnation, God becoming flesh, it means that Jesus understands our weakness, but it also means that he can offer us his strength. 
You know, Hebrews 4, 15 to 16, it says so clearly, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And so let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so my encouragement to you is if you are feeling weary today, please bring that burden to Jesus in confidence, believing that not only does he understand, but he also cares for you. All right, let's pick up the story again in verse 10. Let's keep going. And so Jesus answered her, the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And so we're kind of getting to the heart of the story in this moment, where Jesus actually reveals that she might be able to get him water from the well, but only Jesus can offer her what she truly needs, which is living water. And I love this picture. As Jesus sits and watches her draw water out of the well, he engages her mind in a conversation, and he draws her into a dialogue about living water water. You see, water is life. This required this woman to come to this well on a daily basis to meet this need. I mean, her life is literally dependent on this daily chore. And so Jesus, he begins to point to her, point to her a greater water to meet a greater need in her life, to quench a greater desire and need that she truly has. Now, when he uses the term living water, it actually kind of carries with it a double meaning. The expression living water actually was meant to be understood as a fresh spring water location. But Jesus is not actually talking about actual literal water in this text, but instead he's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit that he will give. And it's actually clarified if you look in John chapter 7, he actually talks more about that there. So the Holy Spirit living in us, unlike well water, it will never run dry. And for those of you you who are in Christ, it is a fresh spring of water dwelling within us that will quench our spiritual thirst and lead to eternal life. Now in this story, the woman actually questions Jesus's ability to actually provide this living water. I mean, she sees he has no way of providing water for himself. And so she asks him if he thinks that he is better than the patriarch Jacob who provided this well. Now, if you look in Genesis 29, there's actually a lot of similarities between these two stories. It's quite interesting, but there's also quite a big difference at the same time between these two accounts. Because in Jacob's story, when he arrives at his well, physically, he literally lifts and moves this heavy covering over the well in order to provide water for other people. And so with that in the back of her mind, she looks at Jesus and wonders how Jesus, as tired and thirsty as he is, is going to be able to provide anything more to her than Jacob. How could he provide this living water? Now this entire time, Jesus has been engaging this woman's mind to explain to her the real need that she has, which he and only he can provide. See, more than water, 
She needs the eternal quenching power of the Holy Spirit to refresh her life because she has become spiritually dry. And since this woman is still unconvinced, Jesus begins to speak to her heart next, and he reveals her need for this living water. Let's continue in the story in verse 16. It says this, he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place that we must worship is Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And then the woman said, I know Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. You know, this encounter, as we've already talked about, is already culturally irregular, but now Jesus takes the conversation to a whole nother level, doesn't he? When he asks this one simple question, he actually gets to the heart of the issue and kind of reveals the need of what this woman has in her life, the fact that she needs this living water. He says to her, go call your husband. Now, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, he actually knows of this woman's past. He knows her history, that she's had a broken, a past of broken relationships. In fact, five failed marriages. Now, the Jews held the belief that a woman at most could have two, no more than three divorces. And here this woman is now in her sixth relationship. Now, whether the first five marriages ended lawfully or not, the fact remains the man she was currently with was not her husband. And for that, she would have been viewed as living outside of the law and in sin. But we need to understand something. Jesus doesn't bring up this point to shame her. He doesn't bring this point up to shame her, but actually to reveal to her his true identity, who he is, that he is actually a lot more than what she perceives. See, the Samaritans actually rejected the prophets since they only followed the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Old Testament. That's all they followed. But in the Pentateuch, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses actually spoke about a great prophet and a Messiah who would one day come speaking God's truth. And what's really funny about the story is although this woman has no idea what she's saying when she says it, she, it's kind of ironic because she actually begins to tell Jesus the Messiah, Jesus who is the Messiah, about the Messiah who will one day come. You kind of catch that? She begins to instruct Jesus about the Messiah. He is the Messiah, and she starts to tell him about the Messiah who will one day come. It's quite ironic. And finally, there's so much tension in the story. It's like, would you just say it already? Finally, he unveils the truth of who he really is, because sitting across her at this well this entire time was Jesus, the Christ, the living God, Savior of the world, the Messiah, who she spoke about, and who she was hoping for. And church, I don't know about you, but when I read the Gospels and I listen to the life of Jesus, I like to believe he had a sense of humor. Anybody else with me? I think Jesus had a sense of humor. So I think as he says these words, he kind of leans in, big smile on his face, and he says these words to her, I, the one who's speaking to you, I am he. Anybody else wish they were there that day? 
just to see the look on her face. I mean, I kind of wish I was there. We don't have to wonder what happens because after Jesus says these words, the scripture says, like, she's literally speechless. There are no more words, no more questions, no more doubt. In fact, she leaves her water jar at the feet of Jesus, and she runs into town telling everyone that she has just met the Messiah. It's an incredible transformation. Now, as I mentioned at the earlier part of the message, that this story in John chapter 4, it kind of illustrates really well for us the kind of transformation that Jesus wants to do in our lives today. It's the kind of transformation that Jesus offers for the whole person. But when we witness a transformed life, it's because Jesus has first transformed a person's heart, which is often softened by the transforming word and truth of who he is and by his word. And so there at the well, Jesus, he first initiates a dialogue with this woman to engage her mind with his truth. And then we see that that engagement, it softens her heart, revealing to her her true need for the living water, the Holy Spirit, that only Jesus can provide. And once she understands who Jesus is and how he could quench her greatest need through the Holy Spirit, her outward life is changed as a result of her faith. You know, Paul in Romans 12, he writes about being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And he says this in verse 2. It says, Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You know, the truth is that transformation often begins with us hearing understanding, and meditating on God's truth. Because whatever we give our minds to, that becomes the truth that actually shapes our lives, whether for the good or for the bad. But the problem is, for many of us, we have believed a lie about ourselves, and kind of like a bad song that you get stuck in your head, that lie has actually taken root and become the theme song of your entire life. And unknown to you, your mind has accepted the lie as truth, which has changed the way you think, which has actually changed the way you feel, and has ultimately changed the way that you live your life. Church, Jesus wants to transform your heart, but that heart is informed by your mind, the things that you meditate on and think about on throughout your day. You know, the truth is that we cannot change how we feel. You can't change how you feel. You know, people who are struggling with the lies of the heart, simply telling these people to just, just change how you feel. You know, if that actually worked, they would have done it a long time ago. So changing how you feel is not something that we have the capacity to do. You can experience transformation simply by changing how you feel, but Paul tells us to be transformed. How? By the renewing of our minds. You know, allowing God's truth to actually shape our thoughts. It will in turn reshape our hearts, and as a result of that will lead us to a transformed life that reflects the truth of Jesus. You know, I've actually seen this play out many times in my life in ministry with other people, and I had a student years ago who came to me and said, hey, Pastor Dan, can you meet with a friend of mine? Um, she's really struggling in life. She's been seeing counselors. She had seen two different counselors, and she was struggling to get help, and she just wanted to give it a try. She figured, hey, let's talk to a pastor. Maybe that will help. And she was kind of desperate looking for support. And so I kind of set up a time, and we sat across from each other. And as I was talking to her very early in the conversation, 
I realized that, you know, she had no church background, no understanding of the Bible or Jesus. So I kind of thought, you know, maybe my typical usual style may not be appropriate right at this point. And so I listened to her story. And as I listened to her, I just simply tried to encourage her to point out the things that she had going for her, the things that were positive in her life, you know, highlighting her interests, highlighting her potential. I spoke for a while, but as hard as I tried to get her to see value in her own life, nothing I said seemed to work. I mean, she just sat there and she just wasn't buying it. I don't know if any parents can relate to that. (laughs) She just wasn't buying it, right? And so I kind of stopped the conversation. I looked at her and I said these words. I said, I can, I could tell you just about anything you want to hear to make you feel good about your life for a while. But that isn't going to have any permanent change. Only God can do that. And then the first time in our conversation, she actually sat up in her chair and she actually looked interested in what I had to say. I asked her if I could share with her the only thing that ultimately was going to allow her to experience the kind of transformation that she was looking for, and she agreed. And so for the next 10 minutes, I shared not what I thought anymore, not even what she thought anymore, or even what the culture at large thought about her, but instead I talked to her and I shared with her what God said about her in his word. I shared with her that God created her in his image, and that her life had meaning and value because she was created on purpose and for a purpose to live out God's purposes in her life. I shared with her that the pain that she was feeling in her life was actually the result of a much deeper issue. It was a symptom of this thing called sin. And I shared with her that only Jesus could heal and restore that in her life. I shared with her that God had made her his special creation, and as such, God loved her, saw her, knew her, and wanted to be known by her. I told her that God's love was more than simply words, that God showed her his love through action by sending his only son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross in her place for her sin so that she could be forgiven and free and live a transformed life. And as I shared God's word and as I described God's love for this young girl, her body language shifted. She leaned in. She listened. She was moved to tears. As I asked her the question once I finished sharing, I said, have you ever heard this before? She said, I've never heard this before. I've never in my life heard this before. She was overwhelmed that the love of God, the God of heaven, loved her that much and actually wanted a relationship with her through faith in Jesus. You know, I always remember that conversation. I always remember that day because it was a day that I learned a lesson that my words actually have no authority and no ability to transform a person's life. Only God's word, God's truth, can ultimately transform a heart and lead to a transformed life. Church, we need to be people who point others to the transforming power of Jesus' truth in their lives. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we need to also remember to continually guard our minds from conforming, like it says in Romans 12, to the patterns of this world. But this doesn't mean that we disconnect from the messages of this world. It doesn't mean that we disconnect from media. But rather, as we read the scriptures, it's true. We've been redeemed out of this world, but we've also been sent back into this world with the same message of redemption. What it does mean, though, is that we need to remain in the truth of God's word. Because the truth is, for many of us, we've allowed the lies of this world to actually shape our minds, the way that we think, which has in turn shaped our hearts, the way that we feel, and as a result has shaped our lives, but not for the better. So let's continue 
to remain in God's truth, reading and living by the word of God. But as we read the scriptures and as we interpret it, let's not interpret it through the grid of culture, but instead we need to interpret the scripture by the grid or by the character of the unchanging qualities and character of Christ. That's what we need to do. And so my question for you is, what would it look like for you to begin to allow God's truth to begin to renew your mind and to transform your life? What would it look like for you to do this? A couple of years ago, my daughter was struggling to sleep at night because she was having night terrors. Anybody else experience this with their children? A couple people. So she's having night terrors, and night after night, as much as we tried to encourage her, to support her, you know, nothing seemed to change. And so one night, I actually took scripture, and I printed it, big, bold letters. I stuck it on her wall right beside her bed. I said, here's what we're going to do. Every night, I want you to read that out loud, and I want you to memorize and declare this truth over your life. Allow these words to become your words back to God in prayer. And the scripture, and I know a lot of you know it, is Philippians 4, 6 to 7. And it says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, she had that memorized in two nights. What was interesting about that was her age at the time. She was quite young. What was even more amazing is that the night terrors completely ended in her life. They completely ended. What would happen if you replaced the lie that's been on replay, looping in your mind over and over again? What would happen if you exchanged that for God's truth this week? What if you literally put scripture around your home this week, put it on your phone, and allowed God's truth to renew your mind? You know, I believe that if you built this into the daily rhythm of your life, that over time, God's truth will change your mind. It will change your heart. And friends, ultimately, it's going to change your life. I'm going to invite the band to join me up here as I just close this with a, with a last thought here, just to help us prepare to worship. If you keep going in the story, it's quite interesting. I love how the story ends. If you've never read this Samaritan woman's story before, Jesus transforms her life. And then she goes and she shares that transformation with all those in her community. In fact, if you read the whole story, the entire city is transformed by the gospel. Many people place their faith in Jesus. And what's amazing about this is because what happened just before this story is Jesus left Jerusalem because he was rejected by his own people. And here he's welcomed by the enemies of his people. They invite him to stay. See, where the religious leaders struggled to understand Jesus, these unorthodox Samaritans embraced Jesus and his gospel, and because of it, they are transformed. Verse 41, it says, Because of his many words, many more became believers. And so my encouragement to you is that Jesus wants you to experience a transformed life, and he is inviting you today to experience this transformation by the renewing of your minds. And so church, let's pursue Jesus and his transformation, allowing his truth, the truth of his word, the word of God to change our mind, to change our hearts, and ultimately to change our lives for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me and why don't we conclude in worship? Let's worship together.